Good morning, everyone. My name is Brian Fowler. I am uh, the relief pitcher for Redeemer Presbyterian Church, uh, and the Tidewater Presbytery, for that matter. Uh, I am glad to be with you guys this morning. Uh, glad to once again uh, be here at Redeemer Pres. We're going to be looking at, we have been looking at, you all have, I have not, uh, a series on uh, people who are uh, encountering Jesus for the first time. Uh, last week you all looked at Mary, we're looking at Joseph today, but this series is about what, what does it mean for us as we prepare for this in this Advent season, as we prepare to, to meet Jesus, as it were, what does it mean for us to encounter the living God through Jesus Christ? And so we are going to look this morning at this story of Joseph that's found in Matthew uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, if you want to follow along with me in your word. Now the birth of Jesus took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken beforehand by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, Becca and I have recently finished a series on Netflix uh, it's a series called Around the World in 80 Days. It's a masterpiece classic. Um, and, and what the story is about is, is uh, three, well, well, two British socialites, a guy named Phileas Fogg, uh, along with this, this daughter of one of Phileas's friends, a, a lady named Miss Fix, who's a journalist. And, and she writes an article challenging uh, you know, these, these British socialites. She says, now because of modern technology in the late 1800s, we can go around the world in 80 days. And so he takes up this challenge, uh, along with a man named Paspatu, who, who is his servant, uh, and Miss Fix as the journalist follows along. But what this story, as it begins to unfold, shows us is that while Phileas Fogg, while he, he took part in this journey to take part in this challenge, could he go around the world in 80 days? Could he with all his sophistication, with all his knowledge, being this British socialite, could he do this challenge? But as he goes on this journey, and as he travels in all these different cultures, this journey begins to change him. He begins to see things that he did not at first recognize about himself, as, as he, as, as a British you know, elitist, colonialist, was thinking that he is superior to all these other people, and as he meets these other cultures these are people, these other individuals, this journey begins to change him. It begins to transform his perspective. It begins to transform the way that he looks at the world. 
And in the same way as, as we come here to Matthew chapter 1 today, and as we look at this story of Joseph, we see that as he is preparing to meet Christ, that is this event that begins to change him. And I think the same is true for us as what Matthew is pointing out to us today, that as we prepare to meet Christ this Advent season, the question is, how does that interaction, how does this reality change us? How does this reality transform us? Because there are many things in our lives that are transforming. You know, for me, one of the big things was having kids, I think probably for many of us in the room. You know, that's something where you are had a life without kids, although my wife and I didn't experience that for very long, to now a life with kids. You know, having a job changes us. Having an experience changes us. Having, you know, through different educations growing up, how we are formed in communities, how we are formed in our houses. These things change us. But the question for us is, how does our encounter with the living God, how does our encounter with Jesus this Advent season change us? Because as we take a look at this passage, as we take a look at the life of Joseph, we see a man who had a future, who had a life, who had a vision for what he's going to do. He was a carpenter. He lived in Nazareth. He had an idea of where his life was headed. But when Jesus comes into the story, it changes everything. When Jesus comes into Joseph's life, Joseph and Mary's life, it changes his reality. And that's the question we want to uncover today for ourselves. How does Jesus change us? How does this Advent season change us? And and what Matthew 1 wants to show us is that Jesus' coming must change us because he gives us hope in the dark. Jesus' coming must change us because he alone gives us hope in the dark. And we want to look at that in three ways together today as Matthew's going to show us in the text. We're going to look at three different things about how Jesus' hope changes us. We're going to see a problem we're going to see a promise, and finally, we're going to see a prophecy. And in these three ways, Matthew is showing us how Jesus is going to change us, how Jesus is coming, how Jesus' hope changes our life and changes our reality. So first, let's look at this problem. What's the problem as it's manifest in the text? Well, our, our text begins, as you can see, with Joseph facing a, a, a real problem, a real crisis, He's supposed to marry Mary, or, or, or he's supposed to wed her soon. It's a hard thing to kind of say together, right? He's supposed to marry her, but he finds out that she's going to have a baby. And it says here in verse 19, or, or, or sorry, um, or rather verse 18, that he was a just man. Now, this word here in the Greek is the word dikaios, which is used throughout the, Old Test- the New Testament, uh, and it means righteous. It, it, it's translated a number of different ways. But it's what Paul will go to over and over again, your righteousness comes from God. Now, Matthew isn't making a statement here about that Joseph is a more moral person than everyone else, but he's saying Joseph is a guy who believes in God. Joseph is a guy who follows God. Joseph is a guy who wants to honor God, but he's faced with this crisis. He's faced with this problem that this lady who he's supposed to marry is, already has a child. Now, she, you know, I I would presume has told him how this has all taken place. You all looked at that last week in the Gospel of Luke. I'm sure he knew the story, but I'm sure he's also there scratching his head and saying, this is unbelievable. 
This is a challenge. This is a problem because here in his culture, he had this life. He had this future. He was a carpenter in Nazareth. And now to embrace this scandal, now to embrace what Mary is is bringing into this marriage that she already is pregnant, that it's not his child, how is he going to do that? How is he going to live with that? And and, and so Joseph decides in, in the face of this problem to divorce Mary and to divorce it quietly. Now, a lot of, you know, people and ink has been spilled. You know, this is Joseph being kind. What he's doing here is he's saying, look, I'm just going to set this scandal aside because this is a challenge for me. This is a challenge for my reputation. This is a challenge for my future, for my life, that, that if I'm going to go down this path with Mary, things are going to be totally different. And so he says, I'm just going to lay this whole thing aside. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it quietly. I'm not going to create a scandal for both of Joseph and Mary to be a part of. And so that's what he resolves to do here in the light of this situation. He doesn't want to ruin their reputations. Now, you all might have heard the phrase, it's become popular over the last couple of years, never waste a crisis, right? I mean, before that was a political phrase, before it was overly politicized in our day and age, you you might even say that that was God's phrase. Because if you trace the history of the Bible, you trace this history of God creating this crisis only to, in the face of that crisis, resolve it and do something good, do something beautiful. When we trace the story of the Bible, we see that throughout God's presentation of how he reveals himself to us, that he's always kind of in this game of creating crises only to resolve those. If you think back to the um, Genesis and Joseph, who was this Joseph's namesake, not that they have any you know, relationship in that way, but you think back to the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And, and he was promised to be this leader. He had this vision, this dream that he was going to rule. But how does he get there? Through abandonment, through threatening of, of being killed, through going into prison, through being a, a slave in Potiphar's house, and then only after that to be forgotten by the guards to raise up to that position of power. Or the story of Abraham, how God comes to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want you, as it were, in in the year 2022, to cash out your 401k, to liquidate all your investments, to leave the land of Babel where you are, and to follow me out to this other land that you have no idea, you have no family there, to, to Canaan, and I'm going to give it to you one day, Abraham, but not now, and not even 500 years from now. You know, it's going to be after I lead your people out of Egypt. And I'm going to give you that land. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham's 75 years old, and he says, okay. And he doesn't have that son till he's 100. And here is this scandal, these old people, you know, Joseph, this scandal of his life. Abraham, the scandal of his life, and David, the king who has been promised to rule over God's people, but only after he's chased around all of Israel by Saul for years and years. And then God raises him up as king. And here, as we come to Matthew 1, we see a family struggling with this crisis. We see Joseph and Mary, and they're saying, how are we going to trust God? How are we going to live in relationship with God? How are we going to trust his path for us? And yet it seems like this is always how God works. He says, I'm going to to ask you to do something that is impossible. 
I'm going to ask you to trust that I'm at work in this situation. I'm going to ask you to trust that in the midst of this broken world, in the midst of a young lady who's already pregnant by the time they're coming together in marriage, in the midst of something that on its face is an outrageous scandal in in their day, and and somewhat still in our day, he says, I'm going to ask you to trust me. I'm going to ask you to put your life and your hope in me because this is how God works. That in the midst of our broken world, that that God is is breaking through with his presence. I love how Charles Spurgeon says it, that, that, you know, God could have done things perfectly. He could have used perfect tools and instruments. You know, he could have built this um, podium right here with a DeWalt drill. Instead, he takes these broken instruments, these broken tools. He takes us, and he takes this broken world, and he makes beautiful things out of the brokenness. So that when we look at it, we say all glory to the creator and not to the instruments. Because how it's only God in his beauty who can take broken things and make them beautiful. This uh, Friday, I was at uh, a lunch that I've, I've been at uh, for the last several years. We, we have an event uh, at our company, AGI, just down the road. I serve as a chaplain there. Uh, we have an event where, where we do uh, the Salvation Army um, uh, Christmas uh, Depot. Uh, here in the Hampton Roads, we partner with Toys for Tots. They give away thousands and thousands of gifts to uh, families in the area who are in need. Um, and, and so the, the people who volunteer, who are involved, you know, we, we, we've represented for, for a number of years, and uh, some of us get invited to this lunch on Friday. Well, this past Friday, I was there, um, and, and there's, always, you know, there's always stories every year. Um, but this year, they, they shared us a story that, that was just you know, really stuck, I think, with all of us there. Um, and and what, what happened on Friday morning was there was a family, this, uh, a, a lady and her daughter, she came in, they were giving their gift uh, for the angel tree. And, and um, as, as they were bringing the gifts in for the angel tree, they were, you know, the, the, the volunteer who was there kind of realized, hey, there's something more going on here. They, they kind of were lingering a bit. So she said, hey, let me show you around. Let me show you, you know, what we're doing here with the Christmas Depot. They said, okay. So they start walking around. She's giving them a tour of, of how this whole thing works out. Well, they get to a place in the building, and there was all these gifts that, that had just come in that day. And, and they said, these gifts were, just came in the, today uh, from Walmart. And she said, which Walmart? And she said, well, it's, it's the Walmart in Chesapeake um, where the shooting happened. Uh, and the lady um, and her daughter then began to break down in tears. She said, my daughter was killed in that event. Um, and, 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 but it was that moment that she realized how God is at work in a situation where she never thought he was. And even though that doesn't justify the terror of what happened, she could feel this sense of relief in knowing that God was moving, even in a place she didn't think. That, that God was bringing blessing to other people in a way that she could have never imagined. And in seeing that work and seeing what was happening there, she could realize, you know, even though there's darkness, even though that we live in a world that is tainted by sin, even though there is tragedy, God still works. God moves. God is present. And she could have that reality. She could realize that God was present in that situation. And and that's what God shows us here in this text. He shows us that he is present in our darkness, that he is bringing hope 
in that place of darkness because he is bringing this reality of a promise. And that's what we turn to next in the text. He brings us this promise. We see that God is always at work through promise. The, the angel appears to Joseph in this dream. He says, Joseph, son of David. Now, it's interesting that he would address him this way. It reminds Joseph of his lineage, but it also reminds us of a distinct reality, that Joseph is related to David. He's in that kingly line, but he's not ruling over Israel right now, is he? He's a carpenter in Nazareth. He's not the king. Here it is. And it reminds Joseph, it says, Joseph, you are connected to God's plan. You are connected to God's family, to the king's. Remember, there was the promise that that God would always have his son of David ruling on the throne. He says, Joseph, you're connected to that lineage, but you're not ruling and reigning, are you? And so he reminds Joseph of that reality, but also points to that need of hope. He then goes on, he says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, acknowledging there. This is a difficult situation, Joseph. This is a challenging situation for you. And God knows that, and God is aware, and God will work. He then goes on and says uh, that this child that she has, which is conceived in her, is from the Holy Spirit. He says, look, you guys don't understand this, but God is at work here. God has has created, God is is working through Mary in this immaculate conception. He is, is making this child not your son, but God's son. In Mary's womb. And and that's an incredible miracle. That's the reality of this incarnation. It's a mystery even to Joseph and to us to this day. But he says, this is what God is doing. And then he says in verse 21, my most favorite verse from Advent, he says here in Matthew 1 verse 21, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. He says, you're going to call his name Jesus, Yesu in the Greek, Yeshua in the Hebrew, which means Yahweh saves. God is my salvation. It's the name Joshua from the Old Testament. I said that one time. Someone said, no, it's not. I said, yes, it is. It's the name Joshua. Yahweh saves. Yahweh is my salvation. But what is, is, is so distinct about Matthew 1, verse 21, he's just saying, look, this man, Jesus, God's son, the incarnation, he is going to embody this reality. Everywhere he goes, he is going to embody this reality that I am here as God's salvation. That, that, that when he introduces, when he shakes hands with someone, he is saying to them, I am God's salvation. This is his identity. This is what he's bringing into the world. This is what he's showing forth to us as he lives among us. That he's here to save us. That he's here to die for our sins. That he's here to give the sacrifice that God has required in order to bring us into relationship with himself. That he is here to be our salvation. He says this is the hope. This is the promise. That in this most unusual way, that Mary has a child, it's not Joseph's, but it's God's child, and Jesus, who's going to be born, is going to die to save us. This is God's hope. This is God's promise. This is what he's doing here 2,000 years ago in this Advent story. But what I think is so interesting 
about this reality of Jesus' name, about his salvation, is what we call in, in our Presbyterian tradition, we call the double imputation. I know it's a big word, double imputation, you know, financial term. When you impute something, you give value, you give worth to something. It's this, it's this way that God doubly gives worth to our lives. That through the sacrifice on the cross, Jesus pays the penalty for our sins. But also through Jesus living among us, he gives us the righteousness that we need. Because God doesn't say, no, I want you in my presence just clean. He says, I want you in my presence clean and righteous, washed and righteous. And Jesus, through his life, gives us both of those things. What I think is so interesting and maybe kind of an underscored story of, you know, the Gospels barely touch on it, but, you know, maybe an underscored story in our imaginations is the reality that God sent Jesus, the Savior, into this world. And for 30 years, he lived in obscurity. For 30 years, he served, for 15, served as a carpenter with his dad, Living there as Nazareth, he was a neighbor, he was a son, he was a friend, he was a carpenter, he was a worker. And what God says to us in the life of Jesus, what God says to us in the double imputation, what God says to us in Advent is he says that I care about your eternal security being washed, but I also care about you now. I care about your work, I care about your families, I care about your neighbors, I care about your community that I have redeemed you in order that you might go live in all of those places, that I have given you righteousness now in order that we might live as God's light to wherever he has called us to, that that God is lifting us up now. He's saying that that both of these things matter, that, that we are cleansed from our sin, but we are given this righteousness to live before God now and forever, that he is validating our creation. He said, I'm presently working righteousness into this world by by bringing people into relationships. So what we do matters in God's economy. What we do matters to God's kingdom. And so what we see here in this promise that God gives through Jesus, this promise of this salvation, is, is that we see that Jesus gives us hope because he points us to that eternal salvation. He points us to that eternal hope that we are forever in God's hands. We're forever loved by God. But he also reshapes our lives here and now. He also reforms us in the present. But what we see about that hope that Jesus gives is that it didn't just begin 2,000 years ago when an angel showed up to Mary, when an angel showed up to Joseph. That this hope didn't start at that point, but no, this hope was started way, way, way before this time. That this hope started, in fact, we could say, at the fall. And even before that, at the beginning, before God had created anything. That, that, that God had in his mind and in his vision that he would bring the salvation. He had been saying this over and over and over again, because Matthew points out to us in verse 23, he says, look, that this promise of the salvation, this promise of the salvation is coming. It was spoken to us by the prophet, by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin will conceive and will bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. What Matthew is doing for us is he's saying, hey, remember, this isn't a new thing. You know, this isn't as as Star Wars, a new hope. This is an old hope. 
This is an eternal hope. This is God's plan from the beginning. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and they fell into sin, he said, I will send the seed of the serpent to crush the head, seed of the woman to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And he will crush his head and the serpent's seed will bruise the heel of the the seed of the woman. And that was God promising to us. He says, look, sin is in creation, but I'm going to wage war against it but I'm going to make all things right. And he keeps over and over again in the Old Testament saying, remember, I'm going to make it right. Remember, I'm going to bring this hope. Remember, I'm going to bring you into my presence. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to send salvation. I'm going to redeem you and draw you back into this presence. I'm going to give you this hope that was always spoken of in the scripture. That was always God's intention to give to us. And I think that that helps us As we live in this world, as we live in this challenging world that is so affected by sin, as we see shootings in our communities, as we see brokenness in our families, as as we ourselves struggle with the impact of sin in our lives, and and we're always left asking this question, we're saying, how can a good God who created a good world allow all this to be present in our creation? How can a good God who created a good world allow for all this to stand? How can this be? And I think we uniquely, probably each of us at somewhere in our lives have asked that question or something that's similar. And what the Bible says to us, what Advent says to us, is it says that a good God never stopped loving this world. A good God never stopped working in this world. A good God never stopped redeeming this world. That from the beginning, from the moment that this world fell into sin, God said, no, I'm here. And I'm committed to this world. I'm committed to you. Even in this brokenness, I'm going to bring my redemption. I'm going to work out my purposes. I'm going to draw you back into a relationship with myself. I'm going to send a redeemer. I'm going to send Jesus, and he's going to live among you, and he's going to live perfectly in obedience to God's will, and he's going to die perfectly in your place in order that you might have life, in order that you might have hope. And God says, that's not just my thing 2,000 years ago. That wasn't just my thing when Jesus showed up. No, that's always been my agenda. This isn't, you know, the plan B after plan A, Old Testament failed. This has always been my purpose bring you into relationship with myself. And I said that from the beginning, and I promised that from eternity past, and now we get to be a part of that today. And that gives us a much stronger, a much deeper hope in the face of all the chaos that we face. Because this God has always been loving, because this God has always been working, because this God has been present. And his plan and his purpose is to bring this salvation to bring it to us, to bring it into our lives, to show us his love. And he does that by showing us this Jesus. And this Jesus, as we've looked at, should change us, should reshape us. I think probably all of us at at this time, you know, the the story of the Christmas carol is probably ubiquitous in our imagination. Uh, You know, but, but just in case you're unaware, let me quickly give you the cliff notes, right? There's a guy, Scrooge, he's encountered by three different people, the ghost of Christmas past, Christmas present, 
and Christmas future, who the past points out to him all of the missed opportunities in his life. The present points out the joy that is available to him in the present, and the future points out the frailty to his life, the frailty to all of our lives. And, and, and um, Dickens, in that story, you know, there, there is somewhat of a religious point, but, but really he's saying, you know, what this guy Scrooge needs is he needs this moral transformation. He needs to realize that in the midst of all that is going on around him, that, that he needs to be changed. And the Advent story tells us that same message, but it tells us that in a spiritual way. It says, look, in the midst of all that is going on around us, we need this hope that Jesus brings. We need this hope that's not just present in the birth of Christ, this hope that is God's eternal plan for us. And he's inviting us into that reality. He's inviting us by his love and saying, this hope is for you. And we need that this Christmas. We need that always. But we don't need a moral change simply. Maybe some of us do. Maybe all of us need a moral change in some way or another. But what we need is a fundamental spiritual reality. Know that we are connected to God's bigger plan to God's greater narrative, to God's bigger picture that he has promised his son that through Jesus we can have life, that through Jesus we can be loved and we can go out into this world and love others. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you that because of Jesus that we can be loved by you. We thank you for the faith of Jesus' family to trust in you in this impossible situation. May that give us faith to know that you're at work, even the impossible situations that you bring around us. Father, may we know your love this Christmas season, that you are here to change us, to transform us. May we embrace that love. May we follow you. Lord, may you keep us And may you cause us to walk in faithfulness to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.